you're new with us, we're working our way through Luke's gospel. We've been doing that verse by verse for some time now. A couple more weeks, and then we're going to pause for a, a break uh, as we uh, study some psalms together during uh, Advent. Uh, but today we find ourselves in Luke 17, and so if you are new, it's our great privilege to welcome you in on this study as we look at uh, Luke's gospel. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we jump into it. Father, thank you for your word. We pray quite simply today that the words of our mouths and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Come and have your way in our hearts as we look in your word. In Jesus' good name, amen. <clears throat> a few weeks ago, Kimberly and I were trying to catch an Uber uh, while we were in Denver. And so I pulled out the app to connect with a driver and I got connected to one and, and this is what I read. Jesus will arrive in one minute. <laughs> I read that again. Jesus. 4.92 stars will arrive in one minute. Well, this was a, a, gonna be a very interesting uh, Uber drive. What, what did Jesus drive, you might ask? A green Toyota Prius. The note said that he was known for great conversation, and so we needed to prepare accordingly. He was obviously Jesus, but there was no accent mark uh, over his name. And a lot of people today may believe that Jesus will arrive in an Uber, but they don't believe that Jesus will come again. It's a kind of a crazy idea to them, a laughable idea that we actually believe that Jesus will come again. Others think that Jesus is coming again, and some even think they know exactly when it is. Jesus wants us to be clear on some things this morning. He is coming. We don't know when, but he will come in power and glory, and we should prepare accordingly. Currently, we live in uh, this, this time period that's in between the times that we often refer to as the already and the not yet. If you're new to that phrase, let me explain. The already simply refers to the fact that Jesus Christ has come in his, his first coming. He has arrived. The kingdom of God is here. The not yet, though, refers to his second coming, that though the kingdom has been inaugurated, the kingdom is not yet consummated, but we await his second coming so the kingdom has come, and the kingdom is coming. And we live in between the times. And this text teaches us that in between the times, we are to endure faithfully and pray persistently. That's what we are to do in this already not yet. That's what faithfulness involves, enduring faithfully and praying persistently. Now, chapter 18 begins a new chapter, but it's not a new topic. You see the last verse in chapter 18, verse 8 that we read Jesus asks, when the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith on the earth? And so it's a story, a parable, that's about what we do in this middle period of time, in the, in between the already and the not yet. And so we're going to look at it this morning in three simple parts. First, Jesus addresses the already as he talks to the Pharisees in verses 20 and 21. And then he turns his attention to the disciples, beginning in verse 22, to speak of the not yet. And then the parable in chapter 18 is about until then, what should we do? So the already, the not yet, and until then. First of all, the already, verses 20 and 21. The Pharisees, those are the religious leaders of the time, as we've been looking at throughout the study of Luke, come to Jesus and they ask him when the kingdom of God is going to come. So they, they doubt Jesus' credentials. They doubt Jesus' teaching. Um, they're looking for more dramatic signs that the kingdom has come. They're, they're not content with what they've seen so far. They're looking for more apocalyptic things to happen. 
They, they would like to see Rome overthrown as well. And so they're asking about this kingdom. They've heard Jesus speaking about the kingdom. And so Jesus answers them at the beginning, or at the middle of verse 20, when he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that is uh, to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. In other words, in the already, the, the coming of Jesus uh, is, is, is like a mustard seed, he says elsewhere. There's a quietness to the kingdom, almost a secrecy of the kingdom. That it's not super obvious. It's, it's, it's quite humble, it's small, but it's here. Jesus announced that it was here in Luke chapter four in his inaugural sermon, that, that uh, his, his ministry has arrived and now we are in this new period of redemptive history. But the Pharisees wanted more apocalyptic signs. They wanted a little bit more and so Jesus says, it's not coming in those ways. You won't see the already in those ways. But then he answers them and he says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That can be taken a couple of ways. I think the best way to take it is that the kingdom is present because the king is present. Because the king has come. The kingdom is in the midst of us. The Pharisees wanted to know about the kingdom, and Jesus says, the king is in front of you. And yet they miss Jesus. They miss the king, and consequently, they miss the kingdom. I don't know if you, some of you sports fans saw recently Eli Manning as he dressed up uh, to, as an undercover Penn State walk-on, a former NFL quarterback, and he gets all this plastic uh, makeup, plastic, not plastic surgery, but uh, professional uh, makeup artist make, making him not appear like he's Eli Manning. And uh, the, the coaches are fascinated with this guy. He calls himself Fast Chad and keeps, keeps speaking to himself in the third person. And, and the coaches are like, who is this guy? This guy's really good. We might want him on our team. They, they did not know that... Eli Manning was in front of them. And that got a, a big laugh out of everybody, but this is no laughing matter. The king is in the front, in, the, in front of these Pharisees, and they miss him. It, they did the same thing with the scriptures, you recall in John 5, when Jesus is like, you guys search the scriptures, and you know them, you have them memorized, and yet it is they that testify about me. You miss the whole point, because you miss me. And that's a tragedy, isn't it? To hear, to be exposed to Jesus today, to hear the words of Jesus, but to ignore the king, to, to not recognize him and bow down before him. He is saying the, king, the kingdom is in the midst of you because the king is in front of you. And when you're in the presence of the king, the kingdom is present. Now, we, we know this in a, a much smaller sense, don't we? We have a lot of folks from different places here at IDC. And if I were to say Brazil, Brazil is in the house. You get a little, a little something, right? Or if I say the DR is in the house. Okay, okay. Or England is in the house. Nah, no England. <laughs> or Texas is in the house. That's a great country, right? And we, so in those moments we say, the, the DR is present, the Texas is present, the Brazil is present because uh, someone from there is present. And when Jesus is present, the kingdom is present. He's here, the king of the kingdom. It's an already kingdom. And it's a not yet kingdom. Jesus turns his attention to the disciples and begins to tell them about the future aspect of this kingdom. And he tells them first that this day is coming, that he will come again. Verse 22, 
The days will come when you desire, he says, to see the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now that's instructive for us. Why would these disciples long to see it? For the same reason we long to see it. Why do we long to see his coming? Because there's much suffering in our world. There's a lot of abuse in our world. There are many long days in our world. Maybe you had a long week. And we, in these moments, desire for the Son of Man to come and make it all right. We desire for the Son of Man to come and wipe tears off our faces. And Jesus is saying to these guys, the day is coming. God will judge his enemies. He will vindicate his people. We will reign with him. But he tells the disciples, you guys will not see it. There's going to be a, a time period between the already and the not yet. There's going to be a, a, a delay, as some speak of it. But Peter tells us one of the reasons that Jesus hasn't come to wrap it all up yet is because he's given people time to repent. He's given you time to be ready for that coming. And that's an act of his mercy that he hasn't come again. And so prepare accordingly. That he is coming and he's given you space to be ready when he does. So that you don't have to face him as judge, you can welcome him as savior. He tells him next that his coming will be unmistakable. Now unlike the already that comes quiet and humble, the second coming will be quite different. He says it will be as obvious as light, lightning lighting up the skies. He says that in verses 23 and 24. In other words, when he comes it will be sudden it will catch everybody's attention. It will be frightening in a sense. It will be glorious. It will be unmistakable. It will be worldwide. There will be nowhere that you could go to escape it. But something must happen before all this goes down. Verse 25, Jesus must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die and three days later rise from the dead. There's an order of events. Those events have happened. And we await what's next on the calendar yes, when Jesus Christ comes again. Before he wielded the gavel, he had to be nailed to a cross. Now that he's been nailed to the cross, risen from the dead, he will come to wield the gavel. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And this coming, he goes on to say, will be unexpected and many people tragically will be unprepared. Verses 26 to 33 Jesus draws two analogies from the book of Genesis to make this point. He draws an analogy from the story of Noah, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with, who built this big boat and uh, is, is saved from destruction as God floods the earth. And then the story of Lot, who lives in Sodom, which was known uh, for great sin, and God promised to rain down uh, uh, sulfur uh, and fire from heaven. And he says, you can look at those two stories and say when Jesus comes again, it will be like that in several different ways. And what Jesus draws on in, in, uh, first in the story is not so much about the sin that was in the land at that time, but rather how people just went on with their everyday life. That they just didn't think about anything else. You notice how he says there in verses 26 to uh, 30 that people were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were buying stuff, they were planting. And Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to do those things. That's part of what it means to live in God's world, to, to go about life and do these sorts of basic things. The problem is they weren't thinking about anything else. Their whole life was just wrapped up in that. It was just business as usual. And consequently, they were unprepared. 
They were not thinking about destruction and judgment. And so today Jesus might say it's like, you know, people were going to the soccer field and people were going to the office and people were going to the the coffee shop. It was just business as usual and no one was prepared. Now, Noah is out there building this massive boat. I don't know if some of you may have seen the replica that's in the state of Kentucky. Uh, I've seen it, it's a massive, massive thing. And even though this act is happening, no one is thinking about judgment to come. And you're like, well, what should we do to get ready for this judgment to come? Should we go build a big boat out in the middle of the country? No, we don't need a boat, we have a Christ. And we find refuge in him. And if we are in Christ, then we are prepared. And if we're outside of Christ, there is no protection. We are only left exposed before the judgment of God. Noah and Lot are rescued, and God's people will be rescued, but many will be unprepared, tragically. People that just start off their day with their basic to-do list and go through the basic acts of the day without ever giving a thought to the fact that Jesus Christ will come again. And some even think it's a laughable idea. Genesis 19, uh, Lot's son-in-laws thought it was a laughable idea. Lot goes in and tells them in, chapter, in verses 12 to 14, hey, we need to get out of here. Judgment is coming on this city. And the text says that they thought he was jesting. Well, Jesus makes application to these stories in verses 31 and following when he says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to get his goods, nor the one who is in the field turn back to get stuff. And then he gives one of the shortest verses in the New Testament remember Lot's wife. That's got to be the second shortest after Jesus wept. So if you know those two, you got two verses, okay? Those are important too. (laughs) Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, whoever loses his life will keep it. So first, there's a picture of urgency. If you're working on on your house, back then it was a flat roof, and this judgment is coming, don't worry about your stuff. Likewise, if you're in the field, no need to go back to retrieve stuff. There's a sense of urgency. If you're in a plane and it goes down, don't worry about your snacks. Get out of the plane, right? There, something is taking priority now over my peanuts. There's a, something cataclysmic has just happened. So there's a sense of urgency, and also there's an emphasis here on detachment from things. You don't need things. If Jesus really matters to you, then stuff shouldn't matter that much to you. So just let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, as Luther said. What good is a laptop when Jesus comes again? What good is our cell phone when Jesus shows up? Now let's hear the word of the psalmist. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And he says, remember Lot's wife. Well, what what you may not know about Lot's wife, it's my pleasure to tell you. She perished. She perished. He had every warning to leave Sodom. Her family is leaving. Every opportunity to escape destruction. And the text said that she did what? She looked back. And what is in that act of looking back is more than just the physical act of looking back. They're being told not to look back, to get out. She looked because of what she loved. She could get out of Sodom, but she couldn't get Sodom out of her. As Beg put it, her feet were running, but her heart was staying. And this this is the, the detachment. Don't worry about these things. Worry about the kingdom. 
Russ Moore gives an illustration in his book, Adopted for Life, as they were bringing their kid home, one of their sons home from uh, Russia, that he kept looking back, reaching back, looking out the back window for the orphanage when he's being taken to a better place. We have been rescued, my friends, in, in Jesus Christ. There's no need for us to look back. There's only need for us to look forward. And Jesus says here, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like a rerun of Noah and Lot. People will be absorbed in daily life. They'll be absorbed in things, not looking for the Savior and Judge to appear. So let's be prepared spiritually. Let's love Jesus supremely. Let's live for his glory. And the, there's a warning here with Lot's wife as well in the fact that she was part of a godly family. She was, after all, part of Abraham's family. 2 Peter 2.7 says that Lot was righteous Lot. And yet she is is going down in judgment. You can be a member of a godly family, have a godly dad or mom or siblings, but not be ready yourself. And so it's a sober word and a good word for us because all of God's warnings are for our good. Remember Lot's wife. If you haven't read that story, I'd encourage you to do that. Jesus puts a uh, sharp point on it in verse 33. If you seek to preserve your life like Lot's wife, you'll lose it. That is, you'll lose it in the eschaton. If you, if you seek to keep loving the things that the world loves, you'll lose your life. But if you lose your life, that is, you're looking forward to the coming of Jesus, you're caught up in the love of Jesus, you will be delivered like Noah and like Lot. So don't be unprepared. Seek the king and his kingdom. Verses 34 to 7, he says that his coming will divide people and even families. Two vivid analogies here. Two people are in bed. One's taken. The other's left. Two people are, are grinding grain. One's uh, taken and one's left. In other words, there are consequences to his coming. Which one is taken and which one is left? It doesn't really matter and it's not exactly clear. In each instance, someone is delivered and the other is judged. And that is the point. Stop and think about this scene for a moment. Two people that look very similar. It's kind of like the, the people that we work with, the people that we shop with, in many ways we look similar. I know we're all different, but we usually wear clothes of a common generation. We, we go to work at the same time. We shop at the same grocery stores. In many ways, our coworkers look very similar to us. But there is one profound difference. One belongs to the Son of Man and one doesn't. And Jesus says here, two people doing the, the two, uh, same things, a husband and a wife in a bed, and two ladies grinding grain together, and his coming will divide even, it doesn't mean every family will be divided, but you can be that close to someone who belongs to the Son of Man and not belong to him. And there will be this holy separation one taken away for judgment, the other uh, left behind in salvation, or vice versa, however you want to parse that out. But that's the point, that there's going to be a division, a separation, when the Son of Man comes. Now, Jesus has unpacked a whole lot of stuff, and the disciples ask a very disciple question <laughs> that they are prone to do in the, in the Gospels. They said to him, where, Lord? That's the question. I don't even know what the question means, honestly. Where what? 
uh, where are they taken? Uh, where are they saved? Where will this take place? Their, their question is, where, Lord? And then you're hoping, you know, Jesus will clear it all up for us, what they meant by the question. And he says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You're like, great, appreciate that. <laughs> I'm just going to start saying that uh, whenever I don't want to be in a conversation. You know, somebody, I got a deep question for it. Well, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Praying for you. Uh, well, it has to mean something, right? Um, and I, I think this is my take on it. Obviously, it's a very gruesome picture. It's a very sobering picture of vultures gathering around prey. Um, and they're asking, where is all this going to take place? And I think the idea is the judgment will come wherever there is spiritual death. It could come anywhere. It may be in a home, it may be in a workplace, it may be in the marketplace, it may be on the soccer field. The judgment could come right in the middle of anything. And like his coming that's like lightning, his, his judgment will be unmistakable. It will be as clear as seeing a bunch of vultures coming after prey. Well, what do we do in light of all of this? Well, Jesus follows that up by this parable, I'll be brief on it. We persevere in faith and prayer. It's a very interesting parable, and as I said, Jesus ends the parable in verse 8 by saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And one of the ways faith is expressed is through persistent prayer. And that's what this parable is all about. Unlike other parables, Luke actually gives us the meaning before the parable. And that's helpful, given we're a little confused in verse 37. 18.1 is not confusing. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So whatever Jesus is going to say next in the parable, that's the point, that we are to pray and not lose heart. It's kind of like Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, the book opens up with a sentence that basically the rest of the story unfolds. Maybe you're reading it this week. I was not, but anyway, it goes, it is a truth, I have watched the movie, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man, the short movie, uh, in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And then the story tells us how, this, uh, how it all unfolds. Here it is with Jesus. He's going to give us a story about a persistent widow. You might even call her a nagging widow. And she has been some victim of injustice. And she cries out to this, this unjust judge for help. And Jesus says, I love how the text opens with, that you ought to not lose heart. This implies between the already and not yet, you will be tempted to lose heart. So if you have lost heart, well, probably a good indication you, you're living in the right time. <laughs> That's normal. That there's going to be times that are tough in the not yet, or in the middle of the already and not yet. You may have come out of a week that's been difficult. You may deal with hurt or relational conflict or your own failures or health issues, betrayal. There are whole sorts of things fall into this category of we're living in a fallen world groaning for redemption. So we are to not lose heart and not stop praying. As the theologian M.C. Hammer said, we got to pray just to make it today. <laughs> praying always, right? Without ceasing. Now, the judge that is painted in this story is, is not painted in a very good light. He is self-obsessed and he has no concern for this widow's situation. 
and you can feel the plight of this widow, she has no one to advocate for her, which in that society she really needed. She has no friends in high places, only friends in low places. She has no resources. And the judges were always called on to give particular care and priority to the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. This is how Isaiah opens, blasting uh, the judges who were not giving priority to widows. Because God has a particular concern for widows, orphans, and strangers. And we are grateful for those in our body that do these kinds of ministries, and we're supporting many of them even today outside. And this widow has only one weapon. She has no resources, no friends in high places. All she has is persistence. Persistence. She exhausts this judge. You can imagine her chasing this guy around town. Every time he goes home, she's following him. Justice for widows, justice for widows. He goes to the marketplace and she's chasing him around. And he says that she continues to bother him and she's beat him down, which is a verb that literally means to give a black eye. She has, has exhausted him like a linebacker that continues to sack the quarterback and exhaust the offensive line. That's her prayer life. She just continues to plead and to plead and to plead. I don't know about you, but I'm really challenged by this parable. That's what our prayer, prayer life should look like. Knock and keep knocking. Seek and keep seeking. We're told in Colossians 4, Epaphras wrestled in prayer on behalf of the Colossians. Jacob wrestled with God. Paul writes that he's laboring for the Galatians like a lady in childbirth until Christ is formed in them. So is there an issue in your life in which you need to wrestle with God in prayer? Intercessory prayer is very hard work. And the answers don't come effortlessly. And let's seek him. This text is showing us the power of persistent prayer. Jesus applies it in verses 6 to 8 as he argues from the lesser to the greater. He says, if an unjust judge gives justice to a widow, how much more will God give justice to the elect? That cry out to him day and night. He will. We can be assured that he will answer our prayers. On this particular issue of, of his people being victims of suffering and persecution, Revelation 6:10, the martyrs cry out. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? And Jesus is saying this widow is a microcosm of God's people throughout, the, 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 uh, throughout history. But he will act. He will give justice, as the text says here, speedily meaning that he will come soon. It's next on the eschatological calendar. God hasn't forgotten his people. Now, we shouldn't read this text to, to say that God is like this judge, that he's bothered by us, or that he's reluctant to give. We know that we come to our Father who loves to give good gifts to the giver. Again, we don't press every point on a parable. The, the point here has already been made for us in verse 1. What are we to take away from this? Keep praying. Don't lose heart. Keep praying, keep pleading. And Jesus says, when I come again in verse 8, will I find this kind of faith on earth? And I want him to find that kind of faith at Imago Day. Don't lose heart, church. Some of you are going through some stuff. You don't even want to answer the question in the hallway, how are you doing? 
<laughs> I've, I've learned to just say there's a lot there. Yeah, yeah, how you doing? Uh, you feel this. There is a sense in which you can lose heart in this broken world. You long for Jesus to come back. And this text is saying don't stop believing in him. Don't stop seeking him. One day you will see him and it will all be worth it. You may for your faith be mistreated in this life. You might be discriminated against because of your faith. You'll certainly face discouragement and despair in this life. You will see other people mistreated for their faith or read about other believers being mistreated for their faith. And when that happens, remember this passage. Our God is faithful. Jesus is coming again. And all of our persistence will be worth it. God will vindicate his people. Jesus will make all things new. He will usher in a new creation where the lion and the lamb dwell together. And the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. In between the times, the call is to be faithful and to be persistent in prayer. Our Uber driver did come, as the app said he would come. And Jesus was quite talkative. I've had other Uber drivers not show up. There is no question about Jesus Christ coming again. It is a certainty. And when he comes, he says it will be unmistakable. It will be unlike anything we've ever witnessed in our lives. So let's prepare accordingly. And if you're not a Christian, our call to you is to repent and believe the gospel today. Right in your seat right now where you're at. Trust in this Savior. Then you can welcome him as Savior and not face him as judge. God's given you time in order to repent out of his mercy. And you can do that today. And if you are a Christian, let me encourage you to anticipate his coming. To take all of your grief and all of your sorrow and let it be swallowed up in this promise that I'm going to see my Savior one day. And the affliction that I face right now will then seem as light and momentary in light of the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. It will all be worth it. And then all of the grief and all of the sorrow and all the pain and all the uh, Mondays, almost said a bad word, that, that, that you face in this life will all be made new when we see our Savior together. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We know it will. It's coming. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises of Holy Scripture, for the hope we have in the gospel. And I pray for any who are in this room in this moment who do feel the temptation to grow weary and to lose heart. Build them up right now in their most holy faith. Help them to live their days as painful as they might be in light of this great future that we have. And let that hope today strengthen them, build them up, that they may persevere until the end. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for solving our greatest problem on the cross as you died for our sin and then as you rose from the dead. And as we take the Lord's Supper now, we do look back, but we also look ahead to all that you have for us. And we say thank you in Jesus' good name. Amen.